0: If you have your Bible, since you're not going to laugh at my horrific jokes, join me in 1 Kings chapter 19. I know that you know this is the day after Christmas. What do you do now? That's the predominant question. What now? What do you do after a sequence of extremely busy events? What do you do after living out unrealistic scenarios over the last several weeks. How do you respond now that you have returned back to reality? Well, the scripture teaches us how to be resilient even in moments like that. To return to form after a season such as Christmas is. I would call it a mountaintop experience, and in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is going to teach us what not to do and what to do after a mountaintop experience. What now? I mean, what do you do after you have been miraculously fed by ravens? They have brought you food in the desert. What do you do if in the middle of a drought, you have been sustained by a little brook that God has certainly provided for you and it has dried up. What do you do after you've seen somebody raised from the dead? What do you do after you have seen God over and again meet your needs through the meager substance of a widow? What do you do after you stand on Mount Carmel and literally you call fire down from heaven? What do you do if after you pray a prayer that ends a three-year drought that you have prayed into existence, what do you do after a season of extreme busyness and a sequence of unrealistic, as it were, events, and you return back to reality? We're going to learn from Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll begin reading in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel... All that Elijah had done, and with all, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword on Mount Carmel. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and requested for himself that he might die. And said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. We have just watched Elijah, literally in the chronology of scripture, in the sequence of events, experience unbelievable by most standards, other than God is the God of the impossible, miracles over and again. He has literally seen dead return to life, miraculous provision, extend his ministry. He has witnessed God send fire down from heaven. He has executed all of the prophets of Baal, which were his own personal enemies and certainly the enemies of God. And as we concluded chapter 18, another miracle has taken place, which I'll talk about in a moment. But here in verse 2, we find him return back to reality when Jezebel, Ahab's wife, who was not a good lady, married to a really bad guy, says to Elijah, I don't care about all of your miracles. I don't care about everything that you've experienced. I don't care about all that you've gone through. I want you to realize in verse 2, she says to him by messenger, you have 24 hours to live. I am going to kill you like you had the prophets slain. That is not what Elijah was expecting. Elijah's living miracle after miracle. Elijah has prayed a prayer so epic that it's chronicled in the New Testament. In the New Testament, James says, Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions. He's just like you and me. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. James in the New Testament says, Elijah was so blessed by God, he prayed a prayer so epic, I want to chronicle it here for you. So that you can historically understand just how significant Elijah was. What an amazing experience it must have been to be Elijah. I mean, the guy's on a roll. You probably didn't notice it, but as chapter 18 ended, he has just experienced great victory on Mount Carmel. All the prophets of Baal have been slain. God has now led him to pray the prayer that will end the drought. He goes up to the top of Mount Carmel. He prays that God would end the drought. He sends his servant to the edge of the cliff who looks out over the land. He, he doesn't see anything. Elijah sends him seven times. And on the seventh time, he sees a cloud, like a little fist, and he knows it's going to rain. God has answered his prayer. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 18 and verse 45, and it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Now, this is important because Elijah has enough faith to believe that God will send rain that he says to Ahab, Ahab, you better get back to the palace in Jezreel and, and you better get on it so that the rain doesn't stop you. And Ahab goes and he gets on his horse or he gets in his chariot and off he goes. He is racing back to Jezreel. And then the Bible tells us this. In verse 46, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Big deal. A lot of Bible words. Girded loins, Jezreel. What are you talking about? What this means is that Elijah reached down, he took the back of his robe and he picked it up over the front of his robe and he tied a knot in it so that he was wearing incredibly biblical and modest athletic shorts. And then with his feet adorned with what I like to call Air Jerusalem's, they were sandals. The hand of the Lord goes on him and he runs back to Jezreel. Now he has already given Ahab a head start, who is on a horse or at least pulled by chariots, and he is going back to Jezreel in a hurry. And the Bible tells us the hand of God was on Elijah to such a degree that with the girded up loins in the air Jerusalem's, he outpaces Ahab and he makes it back to Jezreel, and he's standing there at Jezreel before Ahab gets there. That's something. Now I stop and I try to enter into the stories of the Bible and I think what was going through Elijah's mind as he is flying back to Jezreel and I must imagine he's thinking thank God the battle's over the drought has ended he has been public enemy number one during the drought Ahab has looked for him everywhere to kill him In fact, via Obadiah the prophet, Ahab and Elijah set up this conflict on Mount Carmel, and it's kind of the climactic ending to this engagement between Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. There can be no doubt at this point that Elijah's God is greater than Ahab and Jezebel's. That this battle, this conflict, this argument, it must be coming to a conclusion. After all, I've stopped rain Rain has started again. People have been raised from the dead. God has provided. Fire poured down from heaven. The prophets of Baal are killed. He must have thought to himself, I'm looking forward to a Bible study in the palace. I'm looking forward to Jezebel looking at me and saying, I was wrong. I'm looking forward to talking to Ahab and having Ahab say to me, your God is great. Come and teach me about your God. But instead, what we got is 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 2. And when Jezebel hears about everything that happened on Mount Carmel, and Ahab says to her, and it's going to rain again. The drought is finally over. Instead of saying, bring Elijah in that I might embrace him with a hug, she says instead, you got 24 hours to live I'm going to kill you like you killed one of the prophets of Baal. And if if I don't carry through on that, may God do to me and more also her God if I don't follow through. That is not what he expected. That is coming down off a mountaintop experience in dramatic, terrible fashion. His life is threatened, and I know what we're about to experience, scripturally speaking, is that we will watch God's man literally live through the ups and downs. It's stunning to return to reality after an unrealistic season, right? I don't know if you've had to experience this thought yet, but it may be that you have to go back to work this week. And you have to go to church, and and like next Sunday, there's not even gonna be poinsettias and stuff and lights to keep your mind busy while I preach. You're gonna have to look at me. You're going to have less distractions. You're not going to have presents to buy. You're not going to have anybody giving you a car. There are no more cookies. Honestly, that's probably better for all of us, right? No more big things to plan for. I mean, we're, we're coming out of it now, and we're entering back into reality. And this is exactly where Elijah finds himself. You mean the conflict is not over? You mean this is still going on? You mean after everything that we've just gone through, all of my unrealistic expectations are now failing to be met. This battle is still going on. And the Bible tells us in verse 3, exactly as we read a moment ago, he saw that. He knew the messenger had told him that Jezebel is going to kill you. He realizes the battle is still unbelievably, amazingly, unendingly going on. And it says he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to the tribe of Judah. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. That's it. He's literally afraid, by the way. Now, it stands out to me that this is a man who has just experienced three and a half years of miracle after miracle after miracle. He has literally just made it from Mount Carmel to Jezreel ahead of a man on a horse who had a head start, and he is not a prophet who was fleet of foot. He has experienced all of these miracles, and when Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, he has just witnessed fire come out of heaven and burn up stones and water and sacrifice and altars, and earth, and slain the prophets of Baal, and yet he is faithless immediately. And he thinks, you know what God can't do? He can't stop Jezebel from killing me. I am so thankful that the Bible lets us see the heroes of Scripture are just like us. Because after all of that, he's still afraid of Jezebel the queen, and he runs he gets as far as he can out into where the tribe of Judah would live, and he sits down under a juniper tree, and I think that the Bible language is intentional, and I know that in, in chapter 18 and verse 42, we read this very phrase, that Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and by the time we get into chapter 19 and verse 4, we see him down under a juniper tree. In a period of time that was extremely concise. In just a few verses, he goes from up at the top to down and under. Have you ever experienced that? In fact, that can kind of be what this week feels like for people. Whatever season of life you have experienced or been through where you find yourself going from here down to here, I know that certain things tend to happen in those moments and they happen for Elijah. And the first thing is this, a negative attitude takes over. He's afraid and he's got a negative attitude. Somebody wrote, fear is the little dark room where negatives are developed. Notice what he prays in the second part of verse 4. He requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. Can you hear the pathos in his voice? I have had enough. Have you ever said those words? I mean, not said those words? Have you ever not said those words? I've had enough. Our enough meter is really easy to reach. I've had enough. You've only been up three minutes. I know. I've had. That's all I needed. I've had enough. I've had enough. I've had enough of you. I've had enough of you. I've had enough of that. I've had enough of them. That hasn't happened yet. Still had enough of it. I know it's coming. I've had enough. I've had enough of this week, and we're only 11 and a half hours into it. I've had enough of going back to work. I've had enough of going back to reality. I've had enough. And Elijah says to God, I've had enough. That's all I can take. I give it in. In the New Testament, we read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That last phrase is that ye may be able to bear up under it. We misunderstand that verse because what we see in that verse is God has told us any time that we have a trial pressing in on us, he's made a way of escape and we're going to be able to just slide out a side door and the pressure is off. What is actually being communicated in that is that he has promised that he will be present with us in that moment of pressure and that our way of escape is our reliance on Jesus Christ. And as we rely on Christ and he grants us grace, we are able to bear up under the trial that we are in. We have never been promised that we would be inoculated from hardship. We have been promised that he would be present with us when it arrives. And so Elijah sitting here, though he might say this is an unrealistic outcome, the fact is, of course this is the outcome. There will always be a fight to engage in. There will always be an adversary. There will always be an enemy. There will always be another battle until we are with the Lord. And so he sits down and he says, it is enough. I've had enough. I cannot take any more. And he couldn't be any more wrong. Spurgeon said this, I thought it was great. Elijah said, it is enough, yet it was not enough. He wrote, the Lord had more blessings in store for him. He was to have a wonderful revelation from God on Mount Horeb, and we'll get there in a moment. He had more to enjoy, and the later life of Elijah appears to have been one of calm communion with his God. He seems never to have had another fainting fit, but to the end of his life, his sun shone brightly without a cloud. So it was not enough. How could he know that it was? It is God alone who knows that when we've had enough and enjoyed enough, and we'll never know the answer to that. What I would say to you is this, for everyone who is prone to say they've had enough, and I am chief among us, only God knows when you've had enough. In fact, indicated clearly by the fact that you are here now, you've not had enough. Only God can tell when you've had enough. So when we reach the point in time where the negative attitude takes over and we say things like, I can't take anymore, I can't do anymore, the fact is, yes we can. God is not done with us yet. When a negative attitude takes over, I note this secondarily, we tend to focus on the wrong things and the latter part of verse 4, he says, I am not better than my fathers. Now, that sounds again like a bible phrase. But what Elijah is communicating in that moment is he is focusing on the failure of his work to break the heart of Jezebel, to broker peace so that he doesn't have to still be enemy number one. He is looking historically at the failure of those who have come before him. And he says, I am no better than they are. I am as defeated as they ever were. Self-pity. And now he is beginning to pick on himself. He is focusing on his own unworthiness. He is deeming that in his moment of pressure that God's work has ceased. He is looking at his moment of hardship and imagining that it is God who has failed. He is focusing on the wrong things. What we must avoid in moments where we come back to reality is having a negative attitude develop that causes us to focus on the wrong things. And here's where God steps in and begins to teach, and it is beautiful to read. God ministers to Elijah. In verse 5 of chapter 19, here's where we find Elijah still down under his juniper tree, and he's asleep. Behold, then, verse 5 says, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, And laid him down again. Now I pause here and I think to myself, you have lived a very different spiritual existence than I have if an angel wakes you up and feeds you and you go back to sleep. You've seen some things. Because I'm not going back to sleep after an angel wakes me up and gives me food. I'm kind of nervous as to who else is out there. What else is going on? Elijah goes right back to sleep. This is not probably an uncommon occurrence. I mean, after all, ravens have fed him. After all, a cruise of oil and a little barrel of meal have been extended. After all, he has seen someone raised to life. After all, he has communed with God. But I note something very important here. He has just said to God, kill me. I've had enough. Now, let's just pause for a second because you and I might advise Elijah, Elijah, Your prayers tend to get answered, might want to be careful what you pray. You prayed for this little boy to come back to life, and he did. You prayed a prayer so epic, it's chronicled in the New Testament. You stopped rain for three years and six months and started it again. You prayed fire down from heaven. You should be careful what you pray for. He looks at God and says, kill me, I've had enough. The negative attitude that has developed had him focused on the wrong things and had him at the point where he says, I'm out. And aren't you glad that God is gracious enough to not answer that prayer? He lets him, as it were, and I don't mean to cheapen our view of God. He lets Elijah, as it were, vent. And Elijah is not punished. He is not rebuked. He's not reprimanded for what he has prayed for it leads me to believe something, that nearly everyone who comes to the Lord with the same complaint, Lord, I've had enough, I can't take anymore, needs to do the same thing that Elijah did. And you know what that was? Have a little bit to eat and take a nap. People in their spiritual walk who say they've had enough and they can't take any more probably need to do exactly what he did. And this is incredibly practical advice. Get a little something to eat and go to sleep. How many of you are great tired people? You know when I'm best? When I'm wiped out. When I am literally on my last nerve and I can't even think a clear thought, what you want to do is engage in long-form conversation with me at that point. I tend to be really sharp, kind, gracious, and no, I'm, I'm, I'm nasty. I can't think clear. I'm jumping to conclusions. I'm all over the place. Elijah, lay down and take a nap. One author said this, There are times that the best thing you can do for your spiritual walk is to eat some dinner and hit the sack. And I agree with that. That's intense practicality for God. Half of Elijah's problem is that he's suffering from sheer physical weariness. And God addresses that. When you and I are tired, we tend to look for juniper trees to sit under. When you and I are tired, we tend to jump to conclusions, do we not? That's how it is. When the children of Israel exited the land of Egypt and they had gone just a little period of time without water, they looked at Moses and said, I get it now, you brought us out here to kill us. Whoa. Yep, that was God's plan. You nailed it. Got you out of Egypt with all of those miracles just to kill you with thirst out here. How ignorant to assess that. But when you're worn out and you're stressed and you're tested to the nth degree or something's not breaking your way, you tend to jump to conclusions. So clouded was the thinking of the Israelites, they actually said it was better for us to live back in Egypt. Well, when you were there, all you did was bark and moan and complain about getting out. Now that you're out here, all you want to do is go back. And I always think they wanted garlics and leeks and onions. Who wants to go back for that anyways? Our thinking gets clouded. We look for juniper trees. We jump to conclusions. We become foolish when we are physically worn out and spiritually we need to step back and recharge. And God is going to teach Elijah, Elijah there are a lot of things going on that you can't see. You've deemed this situation as hopeless, but there are things that are still going on in heaven. And in verse 7 we read something. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him, woke him up, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. Now, Elijah is about to undertake a long journey, a journey so long that it takes him forty days and forty nights to complete. He's not going to eat during this 40 days and 40 nights. He has had food from heaven, which is also quite insightful, is it not, when we try to comprehend God's ability to completely control creation and his ability to satisfy humanity's needs and even all the way down to the cellular structure of the body. Whatever this angel prepared for Elijah, was enough for him to go in the strength of that on a long journey for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is going to Mount Horeb, which is the Mount of God, another name for Mount Sinai, which a lot of good stuff happened at Sinai. I love what happens next. God, who is the master counselor, gives Elijah an opportunity to talk in verse 9. Now Elijah has made it to Mount Horeb. He has found a cave to lay in, and of course it's a cave because he's not in the mood to find a sunny meadow. He needs a cave. In the cave he goes, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now God comes to him and says to him, what doest thou here, Elijah? In other words, tell me how you feel. What brought you to this point? Why are you here in this cave right now, Elijah? Now Elijah probably could have been simplistic or sarcastic and said, you told me to come here. But he's about to then, I want to express this because I think this is vital for us to be able to learn from God himself. One of the things that I think is a key application is that we learn from God to extend grace to people who are under it. Because what God could have done is he could have gone, and he really literally could have gone scorched earth. He does this kind of thing. He could have gone scorched earth on Elijah, but he extends grace to him. Sometimes people are just stressed, and they're under it, and we can learn from God rather than reprimand and rebuke, we extend a little bit of grace, and that goes a long way. Elijah, what are you doing here? Tell me what's brought you to this point. And Elijah cuts loose in verse 10. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God's about to refresh his memory. And I think this is important for us to just understand what Elijah has said. I have been really working hard for you, God. I don't know if you've taken note, but I have done some things. I'm the only person in all the land that stands for you. And you should take note that they're trying to take my life. And if they take my life, what you're going to learn, God, is your work is going to cease because I'm the only one you've got left. And here I'm in a cave on Mount Horeb. And God steps in and refreshes his memory. In verse 11, God says to him, get up, go, go forth and see. for the lord and behold the lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the lord don't let this be lost in old testament thinking get up on the mountain and stand there and god walked by him that's it And the power of God on the mount, walking by him, a wind ripped across the mountain. And I know that it Elijah. And the rocks broke as God simply walked by. And then the Bible says this, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Now, again, I know you know this if you're familiar with the Bible. Okay, God, and let's focus on the still small voice and we should and we will. But I think we miss out on the wind and the earthquake and the fire. This was an unbelievable display of the power of God. This is not something that Elijah the next day forgot. He witnessed the power of God over creation. He sensed it. He smelled it. He saw it. He felt it. And he was also on Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, the mount of God. One author said this, he went back to the place which even in its associations reminded him. Every stone, every rock, every crag, every cave of the mountainside spoke in eloquent terms of a God who cared and a God who could do. He took him back to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and said, you remember this place? I revealed myself here. He then shows him an unbelievable display of his power. He's not reprimanding him. He is not rebuking him. He is revealing to him who he still is. Because whenever we're down under our juniper tree and our negative attitude has forced us to focus on the wrong things and we reach an end to ourselves, what we need to be reminded of is that God still is God. God. When you come down off the mountaintop and you get back to reality, God is still God. And the other thing we need to be reminded of is we're not alone. I know you heard how short-sighted Elijah was. I, only I, am left. And I'm in danger. I'm the only one doing anything. You ever felt that way? Probably a few moms who felt that way after yesterday. I'm the only one doing anything. Everyone else is just ingesting everything and ripping paper and throwing it everywhere. I'm the only one doing anything. That's how I feel right now. Y'all are just sitting here in your chairs. I'm the only one doing anything. But seriously, I'm the only one doing anything. I'm working hard. Tips are, there's a tip jar at the back door. If you like what you hear, there isn't. And God steps in and he corrects Elijah's thinking. In verse 18, I want you to hear this is gentle I don't even know that I can call it rebuke as much as a reminder. God says to him in verse 18, I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, you say you're the only one left. You really think you're the only one. No wonder you're discouraged. You're carrying this thinking You're all alone. Do you think you're the only one working for me? Is that what it is? No wonder you're tired. You think it's all on you. Let me tell you something. Nothing is all on you. One of the things that Elijah is going to learn is he is not indispensable. That's one of the most valuable lessons you and I can learn. You aren't doing it alone. It doesn't all hinge on you. It's not all on your shoulders. I'll tell you what will happen. I know this, Grace will grind to a halt if I go get in my car and leave. Actually, people might be happier. Might experience the greatest season of growth ever. Who knows? It's not all on you. You're not indispensable. You say, well, that's not nice, but it's true. I mean, God can move on from Elijah and find Elisha. God can move on from Paul and find Timothy. God can move on from Judas and find Matthias. You're not indispensable. God is. And God is always working. You're not alone. Do you realize by now in your Christian experience that you're encouraged the most by people who suffer in the same way that you do? Helped by that? You mean to tell me there's 7,000 other people out there who are having to stand up against Baal too? Well, I didn't know that. I think he was immediately infused with some encouragement and some help. And I note this last. In verse 15, basically the command of God is this. Get back to work. And the Lord said unto him in verse 15, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahala, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. No more miracles, no more displays of power. He's reminded him of who he is. No more wind, no more ripped up rocks, no more fire, no more earthquake. God says to him, now get back to work because I'm not done. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with what I'm doing. Anoint Haziel, he needs to be king in Syria. Jehu needs to be king in Israel. Elisha, you have another prophet that you must mentor. Anoint him to be prophet in your stead, in your room. You still have work to do. When you say you've had enough, you must be reminded that you are still here, which means you still have something to do. I think one of the things that Elijah learned is that God has not done all that God was going to do. And we need to remember that. Because in our moments of isolation under our juniper tree or in our caves, we think that it's over. In fact, sometimes under the onslaught of media and the way that sometimes in our own little bubbles and and think tanks that are our churches, we communicate to each other that it's, that's it it, never coming back, can't do anything. We just all got to sit here and hold the fort. I mean, that's the song. It's it, hold the fort. We're going to die here in this place, just us against the world, us five, and we're the only ones alive, or us four and no more, or whatever it is. I can think of a hundred of them. But the fact is, God's not done with what He's going to do, and you're here, so He wants you to be a part of it. And so the best advice you can give to anybody who has come off a mountaintop experience and gotten back to reality is get back to work. Battle's not over. Adversary's still there. It's still going on. In study, I came across a book where he was communicating some principles of life for this moment. And he said this, there's no sin in being lonely. Don't add additional guilt to your already existing problems. Elijah was never condemned for feeling lonely or being discouraged. And sometimes we feel so faithless. Sometimes we beat ourselves up for feeling that. Don't. Secondly, don't depreciate yourself. Elijah was under his juniper tree or he was in his cave. And God says to him, I'm the one that's in control. God has accepted you, Elijah. God wants to use you. He's chosen you, Elijah. Don't depreciate yourself. Learn to live with some unsolved problems. Isn't that great? I hate that part. Now, God is going to deal with Jezebel. He is. And and really, if you ever want to read ahead, it's fun to watch her go. If you have a little violent streak in you, it's good. But you have to learn to live with some unsolved problems. Here's, Here's the reality. As long as you serve the Lord, there will be hardship. And as long as you serve the Lord, there will be challenges. And as long as you serve the Lord, there will be critics. And there will be those who take the other side. And you have to learn to live with the unsolved problem. Not only that, abandon self-pity. This is something we need to intentionally do. To be sorry for yourself perpetually is a one-way ticket to deeper loneliness. Focusing our thoughts on ourselves only fuels despair. Fifth, he wrote, share your feelings, share your struggles, share your failures. And you think, yes, that's what I've wanted to hear. I want to puke on everybody's desk with your understanding, Lord. Elijah, don't go find Elisha. And as you mentor him, say, let me just tell you something. This ain't going to work out. Let me just tell you something. This is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And no one's ever going to want to hear you. And you can take my mantle if you want. You can strike water if you want. You can try to bring people back from the dead. I'm just going to tell you, they're still going to hate you. They're still going to not love you. It's the worst thing ever. Talk to the Lord. Cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That is a willful and intentional act. It is literally the depiction of being on a hike with a heavy backpack and having to get to a resting point and intentionally taking the backpack off and setting it down. I say that you and I have to be intentional and willful about casting our care on the Lord. That means when it rises up again in you, you say, Lord, you've got to take this. And it rises up again. Sometimes it's every two or three minutes, isn't it? You start taking it back on. Take, give it to God. Give it to God. Every problem is not yours to fix. Some of them, most of them, all of them belong to him. We always think it's our cunning, it's our word, it's our mouth, it's our rebuke, it's our complaint that's going to remedy a situation. We need to believe that God can do what God can do. Give it to God. Lastly, if outward circumstances cannot be changed, inward attitudes should be. That just means correct your attitude. That's the worst kind of preaching when you get pointed at and somebody tells you, correct your attitude. Get back to work. What do you do now? I've lived through a sequence of busy events. I've lived through unrealistic season of life and now I'm back to reality and I realize the battle's still going on and life is still here and it's happening and it's real. Don't allow the negative attitude to develop that turns your focus on the wrong things. Rest. Remember that God is, is still God. Realize that you're not alone. You're not carrying it all by yourself and get back to work. I love what one author said. God will carry us in his arms until we are able to walk. He will carry us in his arms when we cannot walk. But he will not carry us if we refuse to walk. Some people just stay under their juniper tree. God is not done with you evidenced by the fact that you are here. Let God use you. Get up and walk. Get back to work. Even in these moments, it's the best way to be resilient after a mountaintop experience. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment?